Hello, and welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Lapp, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to by visiting davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 21st episode of this podcast, recorded on Thursday, April 20. I post episodes every other Wednesday. A big thanks to this podcast sponsor, NextFirm. NextFirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. Want to know who the guest will be for the next Original Jurisdiction podcast? Follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for a preview. My guest today is Rolando Acosta, currently a partner in the litigation practice and New York office of Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman. Before joining Pillsbury in March, he served for decades as a trial and appellate judge in New York. Most notably, he served on the appellate division, first department, for 15 years, including as presiding justice for six years. During his tenure as presiding justice, the first department underwent a major modernization, achieving improved efficiency and affording the public greater access to justice. I first met Justice Acosta when we were both guests at a class at Cardozo Law, taught by our mutual friends, Joel Cohen, Richard Emery, and Dale Degenshine. He was such a great speaker, warm, witty, insightful, and I knew I wanted to have him on the podcast. Without further ado, here's my interview of Rolando Acosta. Thank you so much for joining me, Justice Acosta, or, or Rolando, I guess, now that you're back in the private sector. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me, baby. Yeah, so it's a real pleasure. I greatly enjoyed speaking with you at the class at Cardozo Law School that Joel and Richard and Dale taught a few weeks ago. And I just thought it would be great to have you on the show. So again, I'm really thankful. Just to start at the beginning, let's talk about your childhood and your upbringing. You grew up in the Dominican Republic. I did. I grew up in the Dominican Republic and immigrated in the very late 60s to New York at the age of 14. So, you know, came with my family, you know, a large family of six. And, you know, for the same reasons that most immigrants come to New York looking for a better future. My parents thought, you know, they could not give me the opportunities that they wanted to give their children in the island. So hence the immigration. But also, and this is going to be relevant, I'm sure, to some of the questions you may ask. I also, growing up in the island, I grew up during the Trujillo regime, you know, a dictator of over... 31 years, where you didn't have a very strong judiciary. And the caprice of Trujillo is really what passed for justice. You know, this is what I think the origin of my passion for the rule of law and for the system that we have in place in the U.S., you know, a robust judiciary, independent judiciary. And I believe your father had some run-ins with the regime. He did. This was in the 60s. So, you know, pre-internet era. And he was the president of the driver's union. And the driver's union was the tool to deliver information throughout the island. So the dictator figure, when he wanted to have so-called free elections. <laughs> and, you know, he'll lock up the union leaders like my father and, you know, for a few months until the so-called free elections. And then he gets 99.99% of the vote. 
Wow. So, you know, it's also my initial encounter with sort of caudillo is what we call him in Spanish, but, you know, autocratic regime and, you know, very weakened or non-existent democratic institutions and systems. So that was my first experience. Again, why I, you know, upon coming to the States, I felt, you know, learned both civically and in school about our great experiment and just fell in love with it. The way we do things in New York, you really have a robust and independent judiciary. Until lately, it's beginning to worry me a little bit. So, Yes, and I think we'll get to that later on this conversation. But to focus again on your upbringing. So you, of course, were exposed at an early age to what it's like when you don't have freedom and the rule of law. But other than that exposure, were there other things in your childhood or your high school years growing up here in the United States that either moved you towards a career in the law or gave hints that you might pursue a career in the law? That's a great question, David. Yeah, you know, in the 60s, one of those growing families that immigrated from the Dominican Republic, you're sort of the apogee of the immigration of Dominicans to New York. So one of the things we encountered when, you know, I came first to the South Bronx and then to Washington Heights was the, you know, just a lack of an infrastructure, social service infrastructure to welcome the new immigrant group. So we didn't have English as a second language. We didn't have, you know, citizenship classes, you know, that kind of thing that would sort of acclimatize us to the new society and, you know, feel that, you know, we are participants in that wonderful dream of an immigrant. So part of what we started, we, I mean, a, a group of young Turks, I guess is one way to call them, which, you know, included, you know, Adriano Espaillat, who's now the congressman in Upper Manhattan, initially Guillermo Linares, who was our first council member in Washington Heights. It's a line that we created, you know, more as part of that empowerment process for the Dominican community up in Washington Heights. We had Dr. Rafael Antigua, you know, and we created all of these groups, you know, Community Association of Progressive Dominicans which at the beginning was sort of a think tank to think through the issues, you know, addressing the needs of the community. But then it developed into a service provider. So they had, you know, citizenship classes and, you know, all of the things that the community needed at that time. We had, you know, Alianza Dominicana, which we also created later to just address a lot of the needs of the youth in that community. That's sort of the focus of Alianza. But later on, we did all the things, you know, I was part of the funding group of the Latino Commission on AIDS to deal with the epidemic and, frankly, the lack of education or even interest on the part of Latino elected officials and leaders in that epidemic. You know, sort of, you know, somehow that's not an epidemic that affects us. And I didn't know quite what never what that meant. Like, what do you mean? You know, mm-hmm. so we needed a lot of education, a lot of working in coalition with the gay community and other communities to make sure that there was a, a robust response. To come back to your question is what led me to an interest in the law, 
You know, initially I wanted to be a psychologist, but I saw early that, you know, lawyers were sort of part and parcel of this wonderful new society under the rule of law. President was a lawyer, legislators were lawyers. You know, a lot of the people that really impact impacted the community were lawyers. So I said, you know, this is part and parcel of what I want to do. I, and my mother always, you know, she always said, you know, I talk too much. So I should be a lawyer. <laughs> so that always stuck with me. And she, mom was right. <laughs> As mothers almost always are. In terms of the community organizing and involvement in all of these groups that you discussed, was this before law school? Also, I know it extended into your career after law school. When did you start to get really involved in community organizations and the other things you described? Yeah, I mean, I started, like, we created the Dominic Community Association of Progressive Dominicans. I was at Columbia College at that oh, time. Wow. For my first four years in New York, I was in the South Bronx, so I went to public school in the Bronx, Dewey Clinton High School. But when I got accepted to Columbia after deciding not to play professional baseball on my father's advice, and my then-girlfriend, Vasti Reyes, who... Is now my wife of over 40 years. You know, they always say, you know, it, you're an immigrant kid. You know, baseball can be very, you know, uh, sporadic. Besides, you're going to be a dinosaur by age 30, so you got to retire. You'd rather get a law degree, you know, a degree, an Ivy League degree from Columbia who will last you a lifetime. And, and sure enough, so when I was at the college, is when we started working in the Washington Heights community where I lived you know, creating a lot of different groups and dealing with community needs. Then I decided, you know, it's part of the reason why I decided to stay at Columbia Law School rather than go to any other law school, because I wanted to continue a lot of the work that we were doing in the community. So I was, you know, joined the, you know, community board, planning board, 12, you know, school district, six school board. So, you know, we were just sort of trying to be, participants in the structures of that community that was being so great to the entire community. So you were involved in all of these community activities during law school, and then you graduated from Columbia Law, and you began your career as a legal aid lawyer, which I'm guessing was probably unusual even back then among your Columbia Law School classmates. What led you to take that as your first job? That's a great story. You know, when we were in the South Bronx and I was attending Dewey Clinton High School, my father became very ill and lost his job. You know, he was working at a garment factory, you know, too many hours, you know, which is part of the reason, you know, working hard and got ill and we were having difficulty making ends meet, including paying rent. So the Legal Aid Society South Bronx office is the office that in Southern Boulevard that prevented us from getting evicted. Wow. So when I graduated from Columbia Law School, I wanted to work for the, not just for the Legal Aid Society Civil Division, but I wanted to work for that particular office. So I graduated in May of 82 from Columbia Day after Labor Day of 82, I started working in the South Bronx Office of Legal Aid. And I stayed there for, you know, a long, long time until I joined the city administration as the deputy commissioner for law enforcement at the Human Rights Commission. 
And so tell us a little bit about that. What was it like working in government after your time at Legal Aid? You know, it was great. I didn't want to leave Legal Aid. I really enjoyed the work that I was doing, a lot of, you know, not just government work and housing work, but also dealing with some of the affirmative litigation that was being generated by the civil division. And I was a Bronx representative. So we would plan litigation strategy in behalf of the poor, of the indigent in the city. And that was incredibly rewarding work. I mean, I really enjoyed it. It's at the time when we started working on homeless family rights. I had started a legal aid very close to the time that Steve Banks, for example, started, Steve Lofredo, a lot of those folks that were involved in that kind of litigation. Incredibly rewarding, but you know, I was recruited. We actually were still suing the city on giving some of the race, I don't want to call them riots, but some of the racial difficulties that, you know, out of Bronx, out of Benson Hurts, you know, the Sullivan Commission, which was created by the Koch, I created, have basically recommended that, it was called the Sullivan Commission, it recommended that the the Human Rights Commission be professionalized, the lawyers be in charge of investigators and lawyers, you know, increased budget, et cetera, to address the increasing turmoil in the city. So I was the first deputy commissioner for law enforcement. And, and Ross Pierce, who was a friend from the Chelsea office of legal aid, became the general counsel, which counseled basically the commissioner. So I was in charge of all of the lawyers and the investigators and incredibly rewarding time in my career because I began as a drafting team of a couple of us to draft the new city human rights law. Both guys and then later Dinkins told us, you know, we won a robust, progressive piece of civil rights legislation to deal with a lot of the retrenchment that was coming out of the U.S. Supreme Court, anti-plaintiff stuff that was coming out of the Reagan administration. So we did that, and probably, and it became effective September of 91, we redrafted, totally revamped the city of rights law, you know, created private right of actions under that law. And now it's still an incredibly important piece of civil rights legislation. This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the next best step for your career, NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today to learn more. And don't forget to follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for updates on future original jurisdiction guests. So it's interesting to think about how you have engaged in public service as both a legal aid lawyer and then a government lawyer, and then for decades, a judge starting in 1997. And you touched some of the same issues, but of course, in different ways, reflecting your different roles. For my listeners who are interested in judicial service, can you tell us about your path to the bench, including any recommendations on how to get there? And should people be worried that if they get involved in high profile or sensitive issues like the ones you were involved in, that could it cause harm to their nomination prospects? Oh, no. I see. I happen to think that good lawyers should join the bench. I mean, you know, one of the things, and I always say one of the things as, as a litigator, as a lawyer, you're always asking the court to obey the law. 
right? So to be the judge who has to obey the law, who has to follow precedent, who, you know, considers the importance of the legislative policy choices that are made by the legislature, all of those things are incredibly important. And you get to be the one sort of doing all of that and dispensing justice. So to me, joining the bench in 97 was sort of the byproduct of a lot of the activism that I engaged in early on. I mean, in fact, I was in the Dinkins administration until 93 when Mr. Giuliani won the mayoralty. And then I decided, given some of the comments that were being made about the value of civil rights work, I decided I don't want to do this anymore. So I came back to the Legal Aid Society to be the attorney in charge of the Brooklyn office. You know, so I, I did that for a few years. But one of the things that happened is, that, you know, David Dinkins, you know, I had an opportunity to be elected to the civil court. But he decided, you know, Rolando, I need your help working here. And Bill Lynch asked me to stay in the administration to help with the campaign in 93. So it was after, you know, we were not successful that I decided I'll go back to legal aid and then join the bench and got elected in 97 to the civil court countywide in my hand. The bench and being a judge is probably one of the most rewarding. It's different. It's a different experience. You know, as an activist, you don't have the same constraints as an activist that you do as a judge. And and you don't realize how much you miss that until, for example, you know, you see challenges to the rule of law and the independence of the judiciary, and you want to speak up and you realize, oh, wow, there are real ethical constraints on judges being able. I mean, judges are called to circumspection. We just don't respond. We expect that the bar and others would speak and defend the importance of that independence in the judiciary. But lately, it's frankly, it was one of the reasons that led me to rethink my continuation as a presiding justice in the first department, because I had a lot to say. I have been writing a great deal about some of the challenges to some of the attempted changes to the role of judges and the independence of the judiciary and we can go into more details later, but I decided, you know, it's important that, you know, particularly given the deafening silence from the private bar and others, once the battle, the challenges came to New York, I mean, when there was sort of a national issue and you had the former president, you know, picking judges based on a political litmus test. You know, it's all oh, that's just at the national level. But then when it came to New York, it's like, oh, my God, the threat is coming from inside the house, as they said in the terror movies. So it, it was difficult to remain silent under those circumstances. During your years on the bench, did you ever encounter threats to judicial independence? For example, pressure to rule in a certain way? I've been a judge, as you know, for 25 years. I never had anyone ever call me or intimate that I should rule in any particular way or I should do X versus Y. That just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. It did happen to me as presiding justice. It never happened to any of the judges, 21 judges that I oversaw. Unlike the Dominican Republic, I know what a very weak democracy looks like. And trust me, we don't want to go there. 
Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the lesson that I'm trying to teach. From the perspective of judicial independence, were you concerned about what happened to Justice Hector Lasalle when he was nominated to the New York Court of Appeals? Did that process unfold as it should have? It's a merit selection process. You examine the candidates on the merit. Well, this time, the progressives, many of my friends are law professors, basically started a campaign against Justice Lasalle, totally mischaracterizing his record. You know, for example, taking a case that involved, that was really a subpoena, a case involving subpoenas issued by the state attorney general's office against a pregnancy center. And then using the decision that was made by a panel, not by Justice Lasalle, but by a panel of the Appellate Division Second Department in two of the 12 subpoenas on the basis that the Attorney General's office is not entitled to the list of members of that organization, nor the list of donors of that organization. Obviously, those are matters that are protected by the First Amendment, you know, freedom of association. You know, in fact, if we were talking about, say, Planned Parenthood, there will not be a controversy. It's clear, you know, we don't want those kinds of lists to be given to law enforcement. So to me, the court was acting as a check on the power or possible abuse of power by the attorney general. Instead, what it did was they took that decision made by a panel, again, you know, a few paragraphs long, and used it to characterize D.J. Lasagne as anti-abortion. They did the exact same thing with other cases that he had not authored you know, to label him as anti-Julian. So basically, it was a, a slandering campaign, you know, something that had never taken place. I mean, there had always been robust questioning, but never like that. And, you know, frankly, you know, a lot of it was a reaction, you know, by the progressives on some of the changes that have been taking place at the U.S. Supreme Court and the federal bench. A lot of folks feel that we are rolling back on traditional, now traditional guarantees of of rights and privileges to folks. You know, a woman's right to control her body and her health decisions, for example. So, So I understand that. And it's something that personally, of course, I was in favor of. What I'm not in favor of is slandering and then mischaracterizing somebody's record and expecting that judge basically to make decisions based on these political inclinations rather than on the traditional constraints that, that I mentioned before. Judges have to follow precedent. Judges have to follow the plain language in statutes and constitutional provisions. Judges have to set aside their own personal predilections in favor of legislative and constitutional policy choices. You know, we're not political in that sense. So when I see that attempt to sort of pick judges based on how they feel, again, it's something that happened at the federal level. But when it comes home like that, it's a very scary proposition. So quick question before we go to my final lightning round. On the federal side and on the Supreme Court side, there has been a recent controversy involving Justice Clarence Thomas not disclosing certain free luxury trips he received and certain real estate transactions with Harlan Crow, who's a very wealthy man and 
a very big Republican donor, as a former judge yourself, what are your thoughts on the requirements of judges concerning financial disclosure and things of that nature? My belief is that in New York, we have an incredibly robust ethical process. I mean, we have a commission on judicial conduct that examines exactly these kinds of things. There are annual financial disclosure by judges where these things need to be disclosed and examined. They are publicly available. So anytime that something like this happens, you know, like that dictatorship that I talked to you about earlier, the judiciary only has its credibility based on the transparency and the value of the decisions themselves that they issue. We don't have an army to go and enforce our orders. So, you know, transparency, high ethical standards, all of those are things that are an integral part of the credibility of the third branch of government. Whenever there's light, you know, whenever that changes, as in these circumstances and people begin to feel, look at the latest polls with respect to the public credibility of the U.S. Supreme Court right now. All-time historic low, right? Every poll that gets taken. You know, I'm not saying that that's the reason. I mean, there are a lot of other reasons, including how judges came to be judges like the U.S. Supreme Court. So I, I won't talk about that. But whenever there are questionable ethical conduct, you know, it just undermines the very principles that undergird, that sustain an independent and robust third branch of government. So it's just not good. Mm -hmm. So turning to my final four questions, which are standard for all my guests, my first question is, what do you like the least about the law? And this can either be the practice of law or can be law in a more abstract sense. That's a great question. To me, what I love mostly about the law is that it can be a powerful, sharp tool to do good, to do justice, to deliver a quality of justice that I think should exist in a civilized society, you know, that run counter to that sort of obesian notion of the state of nature, right? The problem with it is that the reverse can also be true. The law can be used, particularly when it gets manipulated, and we talked about some of those instances, it can be used to do harm. And that's always sad. You know, again, he undermines, you know, separation of powers. He undermines our great experiment. And it's something that, I mean, to me, that's problematic. That's what I like the least about the law, but it's also, you know, mm-hmm. what I love <laughs> the most about it, that it's power. No, that's true. There are two sides of the same coin. My second question is, what would you be if you were not a lawyer or a judge? (laughs) Well, you know, I would like to think, but, you know, I'm too old now. I like to think I would have been, you know, I would be now a retired baseball player, (laughs) a Yankee pitcher, playing at being an abuelo, you know, a grandfather. I I, I love my, (laughs) my two grandchildren and my children. So that's what I would be doing if I were not a lawyer. Fair enough. My third question is, how much sleep do you get each night? Oh, God. (laughs) Not enough. I usually get about 
six hours, five to six hours. It's not enough. And I, you know, I have a, an app on my phone that is constantly harassing me about <laughs> how little sleep I get. But, you know, I wish I could get more, but, you know, it's difficult, particularly as, as I gotten older and more worry about things, particularly what has been happening the last several years. That makes you lose a lot of sleep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And finally, any departing words of wisdom, such as career advice or life advice for all of my listeners? Yeah, to me, and I, I guess this is sort of, you know, the byproduct of my professional and my own personal life. What I always recommend as life and career advice, particularly to lawyers when I speak to young lawyers, is, you know, do not go through life without impacting someone else's life. As I have gotten older now, you know, 67 years old, I look back now. Now is the time when you begin to examine what you've done, what you failed to do, sort of considering the impact that you have. And I I see that my most rewarding thoughts are those, you know, are, are, you know, not, you know, how much money I made, you know, all of the toys that you've been able to accumulate at my age, you know, those things are sort of have so much less significance than, you know, how many people's lives you change, you know, the kinds of things that you enable other people to do to improve their lives. So it's something, again, it's, it's sort of part of my my spiel to young lawyers when they're being admitted, you know, to do good, to do pro bono work. It's sort of, you know, innate in our noble profession. You know, you, you have to do pro bono work. You have to help others. It's sort of, you know, you, you can't really say you practice law and, you know, and, and you've been a great lawyer if you haven't done that. I mean, to me, that's an essential part of who we are. So. Well, that's a very good note to end on. Certainly as a lawyer and judge, you have touched countless lives. So again, thank you so much, Rolando, both for your many years of public service and for taking the time to chat with me today. Yeah, well, thank you so much for inviting me, David. This has been a wonderful experience. Thanks so much to Justice Acosta for joining me. He's had a remarkable and inspiring life and career, and it was such a pleasure to speak with him. Thanks to NextFirm for sponsoring this episode of the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. NextFirm has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. If you would like to explore this opportunity, contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email development at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Heron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction, and thanks to you, my listeners and readers, for tuning in. If you'd like to connect with me, you can email me at davidlatt at substack.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt, and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already, over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, as is most of the newsletter content, but it is made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode of the podcast should appear two weeks from now, on or about Wednesday, June 28. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects. <laughs>